Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the very special privilege of chatting with author Andrea Bartz. Her debut novel, The Lost Night, was released last February and was loved by readers on both sides of the pond. So it's no surprise that her latest book, The Herd, available from the 24th of March, is featured on dozens of must-read and best books of 2020 lists. If you love stories that perfectly weave female empowerment and gripping twists and turns, then you'll love The Herd. It's clear after only a few pages why Andrea is a master of mystery and surprise. The story follows four characters, Eleanor, Hannah, Katie, and Mickey, who all play important but different roles at The Herd, a female co-working space in Manhattan. At first glance, the herd seems to be the perfect community for women in need of mentoring and support, but when Eleanor, the herd's founder, goes missing on the eve of a big announcement, it's up to her friends to find out the truth behind all of Eleanor's secrets, as well as the ones that the three women have been keeping from each other. Just like The Lost Night, Andrea's latest novel gives us more relatable characters, endings that are thrilling and exciting, and showcases how much the past can haunt and cripple us in the present. I absolutely loved The Herd and so enjoyed talking with Andrea about what inspired her to write this book, how the wants and needs of women are evolving, and the role that co-working spaces like The Herd play in society today. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I am so excited to be talking with the one and only Andrea Bartz, who has written two books that I absolutely love. The first one, The Lost Night, and the second one is The Herd, and it comes out later this month. How are you, Andrea? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to talk about all things The Herd. I was so privileged to get an advanced reader copy, which is for a passionate, avid reader like myself is literally like the best gift in the world because there's been so much hype about it. And I know that people are going to literally go down to the bookstore on the 24th of March and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, where's that cover? So I can actually grab my own. (laughs) I mean, how do you feel when obviously you've turned in your draft, it actually becomes a book and then you start getting your first sneak peek articles, maybe, you know, Bustle is covering it, maybe Pop Sugar, Marie Claire, one of those publications is saying best books of 2020 or best books for March. How do you feel when you start seeing those things coming in? Is it just like surreal to you? It's surreal. And I have to sort of remind myself to be excited about it. And I have to think like, how would I feel if this was the book of someone else I really loved? Um, You know, like if a friend's book was in the pages of Marie Claire, I'd be so excited for them. But there's something sort of dissociative about it when it's my book, but it is great. And trying to really do that kind of savoring and appreciating and just feeling grateful and excited while also keeping my wits about me and remembering like this is a marathon and not a sprint and like hopefully one of many books that'll be in my career and I think that part of the key of not going too crazy as the uh, you know publication day approaches and who knows what will happen with the book after that and on this occasion I'm one of the friends that's getting excited for you and (laughs) you and being like Andrea oh my gosh you only got like three months to go two months to go yeah Um, it's just so exciting and as I said I got to read it before a lot of people which is really exciting but for people who obviously haven't read it yet and had that privilege if you would like to tell us a little bit about what the herd is about that would be great 
So The Herd, it is my sophomore thriller, as you mentioned, and it's set in an exclusive all-female co-working space in Manhattan that's kind of completely upended when Eleanor, who is its charismatic and enigmatic founder, seriously disappears the night of a huge announcement. Uh, And so from there, the narrative unfolds from alternating perspectives of two of her closest friends who kind of end up risking everything in order to uncover the truth. It's dark, it's twisty, uh, and it explores some topics that I really care about and find really interesting, like commercial feminism, like ambition, and the pressures of being kind of a woman in the world. And here I want to note, too, that it's H-E-R-D, and that's the name of this co-working space. And in the book... This came to me in a flash before I started writing, but in the book, it's the herd and the H-E-R is always purple in the logo for the co-working space, which still makes me laugh. (laughs) I love that. So it's like, in case you weren't actually aware, we're not being subtle about this. We're making the H-E-R as pronounced as possible. Uh, Yes, it is clearly for... Not men, for <laughs> women and marginalized genders. In yeah. fact, you know, we could just make the D silent and uh, right. we could just have it be the herd. It's the herd. <laughs> I absolutely love that. So when I was in college, um, I started uh, the college's first like big magazine and I called it Tech Impressions because it was press. Okay. So I just thought that was so clever um, at the time. And I was just like, oh my God, this is going to blow people away. When yeah. in actuality, it was just exciting to me. Um, and I'm, There's I'm pretty... a word within the word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure no one really cared about the name and just picked it up out of being nice. But uh, yeah, at the time I was just like, man, you better get this right away. It was hilarious. Right. So as you mentioned, this book is mysterious with a capital M. It's thrilling. It's cat and mouse. I absolutely love it. And as I was reading your book, I found myself second guessing the characters. I remember messaging you when I first started it and I was like, yeah, I'm not sure about Katie. Yeah, I'm not sure about Eleanor either. And and you were just kind of like, okay, fine. Yeah, that's fine. It's early days. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a Hannah and a Mickey fan. And I literally had only read like the first five, six pages. And that was exactly like it was with The Lost Night. I found myself very quickly latching on to certain characters um, Mm -hmm. because I just feel you have this really great ability to write relatable characters that are just so easy to either hate right off the bat (laughs) or like right off the bat and again that changes which is great but as I was second guessing these characters one minute and then the next minute I was like suspicious and you're so good at giving us just enough to form that opinion and then you kind of take a little bit back and kind of sweep the rug out from under us. And I just kind of wanted to know, so obviously The Lost Night and The Herd are these very fun, mysterious thrillers. And I was just wondering where that love and interest of crime and mystery came from. Was this from an early age or did this kind of come a little bit later? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in in mysteries and in dark things. I love horror movies. I've always been a big horror fan and my friends joke that I'm a slither claw. I like to think of myself as a raven claw, but they said I'm kind of a slytherin too, which is fine. But yeah, when I was a kid, I was reading tons of Agatha Christie and, you know, Nancy Drew and all that. And then as an adult too, I just felt like there was such exciting stuff happening in the sort of domestic noir and like mysteries and thrillers with female protagonists in that space. Um, And so that was 
what I wanted to write because I knew I would need to keep my own interest up for the course of writing it. You know, it's interesting when you say that, you know, there's twists and turns into you, the characters are kind of surprising you because I write without an outline. I start with a premise. Everything that happens is a surprise to me as well. And so I think a lot of the fun of writing the book, and I say fun, well, I'm actually feels miserable and I'm like, this is terrible. But in retrospect, a lot of the fun moments that come from writing are moments when I'm surprised too, when a character does something I didn't expect or, you know, a piece of truth comes to light that I didn't see coming. And then, of course, sometimes I have to go back and rework things a little bit for it to make sense and not come completely out of left field. There's so much interesting stuff to play with in terms of like everyone has their own secrets. Everyone has their own agendas. They're not always even necessarily nefarious, but we're all bringing a lot of stuff to these shared experiences. And so it's really really fun to kind of focus on these little close-knit, closed-door communities, as I did with The Lost Night, with Calhoun Lofts, and as I did with The Herd in this co-working space. It's just really fun to see how all these different agendas and preconceived notions and personalities and secrets sort of interplay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's also really interesting, as you were just touching on there about how you don't come necessarily with an outline, that you start with a premise and then you kind of build from there. Additionally, Mm -hmm. the nuances of your characters are really fascinating to me, but also the way in which their lives are interwoven is equally fascinating. Mm -hmm. So you have your four kind of main characters. Some of them have secrets together. Some of them have secrets separately. And then some of Mm -hmm. them are so not clued into each other's secrets that we then start to see a little bit of the cracks form in terms of on the surface you think that you have this really lovely friendship but then at the same time it's kind of like oh well they don't actually know each other like they think they do Mm -hmm. Um, and what we see in this first kind of half of the book is we see Katie comes to the herd and she is really excited to be there and she's looking around and she's like trying to familiarize herself with this place that her sister and her friends have been a part of for so long and what I was going to ask you is when you were writing kind of the first part of it when we're getting an introduction into what exactly the herd is did you have a really I know you said you didn't do an outline and you kind of start with the premise but did you have a really clear picture of what the herd was going to be? That's a great question. So probably the thing that was clearest in my mind when I started writing was this environment. And that's kind of how my brain works. I had a similar experience with The Lost Night, where the first thing I was clear on was Calhoun Lofts, this sort of party artist loft space with a dead body in it. And in a similar way, you know, I I have this setting that I think will make for an interesting social milieu and home for the story. And so I had a pretty clear vision in my mind of what the herd was going to look like. And uh, though it's not directly based on any of these places, it is sort of my mental image of the wing and the riveter and the coven and the assembly. And uh, I mean, there's so many of them now, but these sort of female focused um, co-working spaces or clubs, social clubs. And There's such a trend, and I think they're interesting because they're so beautiful. I mean, they're so gorgeous that when I go to one of them as a guest, I feel like I need to dress up. I feel like I need to look cute. I feel like I need to be on my game and be charming and, you know, be a total delight to everyone I meet there. 
And I just thought that was interesting that it's this beautiful space um, that was designed to be like absent of the male gaze. And yet for each other, we feel like we need to sort of put on a show and be perfect in order to belong. And I thought that dichotomy, that tension would make for a really interesting home for a thriller and for mysterious events. Yeah. And technically, I don't know if other readers will pick up on this, but the herd is essentially the fifth character so to speak, mm-hmm. in terms of it serves as the setting for a lot of the book, but it also very much, I think, represents how the four characters are perceived in terms of on the outside, they all look perfect. They all look beautiful. They all look very inviting. Mm-hmm. Then when you go further in, there's a lot you don't understand. There's a lot that has to pass a series of kind of tests in terms of mm-hmm. what people view as acceptable. And it's funny that you say you feel like you have to dress up and kind of have a a different appearance when you go to those places. So my mom always makes a joke about how women don't dress up for men, they dress up for other women um, Mm -hmm. because there's just this innate need to want to please. Right. And I think that's really interesting. And it's funny that you touch on the word beautiful because there's a part in the book where something is labeled as ugly. And I thought that this was the perfect time to talk about the C word. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about that? It appears very early in the book. Oh yeah. First chapter. Exactly. First chapter. (laughs) I'm just going to apologize to my mother in advance, you know, to Katie, who's one of the characters. It's literally the very worst thing that you can call a woman. It's funny because being over here in the UK, there's a very different perception of the word. Some people use it as a term of endearment over here, Mm. as opposed to in America. It's a whole other kettle of fish. The word cunt. So I don't think I'm giving anything too much away, um, but essentially a little bit of a spoiler. We come into the herd and the words ugly cunt are put in the gleam room of the herd. And I think it's really funny and I'm going to use a pun. So coming (laughs) Uh, pun intended from the Latin word uh, canis for vagina. It's definitely a a controversial word. I I think you you would say, as I said, our friends over here in the UK, some of them like to use this term of endearment. Uh, (laughs) Some people in America uh, probably are shuddering at the uh, very uh, sound of of that word. But as I was looking more into it, because as I was preparing for our chat, I really wanted to look into the background of it and where it actually comes from. And I saw things like it's, you know, again, from the Latin word cunis, and there was a Hindu goddess, Kunti, forgive me, goddess, if I'm mispronouncing your name, which derives from the symbol of beauty in the female form. Mm. And I was just wondering where your thinking was when it when it came to to using this word and, and using this phrase and why you think perhaps it's become so offensive when probably from the very beginning it was literally just meant to talk about female beauty and, and form and anatomy. Yeah, it's interesting because I write these books and there's so much of it that like, I don't know why I do it the way I do. And then, and then people have these really thoughtful questions about, you know, did this symbolize that? Was this supposed to be a foil to that? Whatever. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, my thinking in originally including it, I cranked out the first chapter very quickly because it became a part of the um, sample that I used to sell it along with a treatment for my editor. So 
I just knew that I needed something nefarious going on right from the start. The opening line begins with um, Katie walking into the herd for her interview, her membership interview, and her way in is blocked by cop cars. And she is wondering what's going on. There need to be cop cars out front. I was wondering as well as I was writing this. And so I got to the part where someone had to provide an answer. And the answer became somebody broke in and left graffiti in the, the gleam room, which is like the sort of beauty beautifying parlor. And I decided to just sort of go with the worst thing you could call anyone because I knew there needed to be something that was a flashpoint. I mean, if it just said, and again, forgive me for more swearing, but if it just said like ugly bitches or something that wouldn't have the same impact. And I think cunt is such a polarizing word because even within these four women, Katie is pretty quickly making a joke about it. And, you know, you guys are overreacting and like, cunts are awesome. They make babies like they're, you know, they're powerful. We should, we should get over it. Um, but then in the meantime, Eleanor owns the space is so horrified by the word that she closes the room for the day, even is more sensitive about it than other people. And like refuse to even let somebody write something for her blog about reclaiming the C word. And she's just very sensitive to it. And I think it is interesting because it's a sexist word on several levels. Like we don't have an equally offensive word that means penis, but we have a, the most offensive word that we can think of means vagina or vulva. It's interesting. How come the worst thing that you can call a woman is a vagina, but the worst thing you can call a man isn't, I don't even know what it would be. There isn't yeah, an equivalent that sort of demonstrates, <laughs> right? Like yeah. that demonstrates sort of the sexism of it already. So it just became one of many ways to sort of delineate the worldviews that I think the characters have and sort of their approaches to feminism um, and to sort of their self-identities. But that's all a lot of lofty stuff for me to explain. Like, I just knew there needed to be cops out front for some reason. And that was that was where it landed. I love it. I'm smiling because honestly, like I said, if it had taken place in the UK, if the herd was in the UK, they probably would have come in the next morning and be like, oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> What a nice little note for us. Oh, she really likes us. That's great. <laughs> but no, in the U.S., that's certainly not a case. And I'll tell you, I have relatives who, like, all they care about is not the quality of my books, just the language in them. Um, and, like, I'll do a podcast. And this is this is for you, Aunt Rhoda. She'll listen to my podcast. And afterwards, she'll let me know, like, I really appreciated your language in that. So she's going to be horrified by this. I'll probably tell her not to listen. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, if we tried to be as correct as possible in every sense of the word, there'd be no literature, to be fair. Um, it's true. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, when I was researching, you know, the word, Shakespeare himself used it. So, and he's meant to be the inventor of, you know, some of our language usage. So, Will, I, Will I said it was okay, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> there you go. Right. I'm with him. I tend to land on, I don't use it personally because I don't know when I would, but I land on the side of like, it's fine to use. Everyone <laughs> calm down and stop. You're just perpetuating the patriarchy by claiming it's the worst I word mean, out there. Andrew Bart said it's fine. So it's fine in my book. It's fine. <laughs> Andrew Bart's and Shakespeare. <laughs> Going back to the characters themselves, as I kind of alluded to earlier, each woman very much from the get go, as I said, even from the first couple of pages has their own agenda. You know, they're really just trying to figure out what the hell is going on in their world and, you know, inside and outside the herd. And it kind of made me think about 
just how we are as women, you know, while we're, we're all still trying to really figure life out. But I would love to know, because I feel like in The Lost Night, and I feel like in this book, and I, I know it'll be the case for many, many more books that you write that I'll love, where you draw your inspiration from when you're creating these women, because as I said, they're very relatable. They're very easy to love. They're very easy to hate. But um, I was just wondering where you get your inspiration from. So in the case of this book, female ambition is definitely one of the big themes, right? And so I wanted these four main characters to kind of represent four different approaches to women trying to gain success in a man's world. And so they have sort of different worldviews and perspectives on the correct way to do that. And so hopefully that's something that's sort of woven in subtly enough that you don't notice it necessarily as you're reading. To give an example, Hannah's approach, she's sort of the competent, mature adult, you know, mother of the group. And so her approach for sort of getting ahead is don't make mistakes, um, impress everybody, anticipate their needs. Whereas Katie, her sister, who's much more brash and funny and kind of loves being the center of attention and can be kind of impetuous, she has more of this approach of, you know, get ahead by impressing the right people and get ahead by gaining attention for yourself and get ahead by sort of earning love and respect by making people laugh, by making them feel comfortable with you. And they all take these different approaches sort of based on who they're trying to endear themselves to in different ways, which makes it sound nefarious. But I think especially for women, we all have to choose an approach, right? We all end up choosing a a path. That's how we are going to try to get ahead in a system that's stacked against us because we live in a patriarchal world and have for a long time. And so for me, these characters, I think, kind of represent different parts of me. People always ask, like, which character is the most like you? And they did the same thing with The Lost Knight. And the truth is, I don't think I'd be able to convincingly write a character if I didn't understand them and relate to them. And so I think for me, a lot of the time I'm going back and forth between trying to sort of get ahead or endear myself by being um, charming and witty and fun and light and making people feel great and keeping them laughing, which is sort of the Katie approach. But then in other times... I am stepping up as the person who's in control and who's very buttoned up and who has a handle on the situation and will make everyone feel comfortable because I'm here and I'm going to take care of things, which is more of the HANA approach. And so a lot of the ways that these women act is going to feel familiar to women readers because we all at times feel like we have to step into these different roles in order to sort of keep things moving forward for ourselves and get ahead. And so it's just interesting to see how when all of these different agendas kind of come together, this is actually what was really fun about writing from dual perspective is it's from Hannah's and Katie's perspectives with alternating chapters. It was fun to write about a moment where, for example, Hannah thinks she's doing everything right by doing X, but then we actually see that her little sister saw that and it drove her nuts because she wished that Hannah had behaved in a different way. And you can kind of play with, play with that perspective in a dual narrated book. I just want to apologize to Hannah because I'm pronouncing her name Hannah this whole time. So. You know what? I actually probably am supposed to. I, it's always been Hannah in my head, but I just heard the audiobook for the first time. The audiobook also calls it Hannah because they didn't, they didn't check with me. So I should probably start saying Hannah. Since that's like on the record now. So I mean, Hannah, Hannah, tomato, tomato. We're, we're going to call her whatever she wants to be called. But yeah, I think that's really interesting. And as you were saying that, it made me think about the part where Katie and Eleanor are in the bar together. And those two girls come up to Eleanor and basically be like, oh my gosh, are you Eleanor? Are you, you know, the owner of the herd? And she's like, 
on it, Eleanor. Spokesperson Eleanor. And then when they leave, she's back to Katie and, and everybody observes that she's like on it as opposed to mm-hmm. who she is off camera, so to speak. Um, and I do think that there are elements of how we portray ourselves to, based on who we're speaking to, where we feel like we have to mold ourselves to mirror what's happening mm-hmm. and, and who we're talking to, not just in our personal lives, but also professionally as well, which is what I find about the herd and things like the wing really fascinating because these community spaces are a fairly new concept. So we just got the wing over in London late last right, year. Right. And it's interesting because overall, I am such an advocate for any space that is really championing the female voice. It's giving us a safe space to network, a safe space to be ourselves and to learn from others. I am a huge supporter of that. And these environments where not only your voice is heard, but it's valued as well. However, these memberships, they are expensive. They're not accessible to everyone's in different income brackets. It very much is an investment and a commitment. And they obviously have different layers depending on how much you want to be invested or committed. How do you see these workspaces changing the ways that women interact and essentially evolve with other women? It's such an interesting question. And I feel similarly to you where I think it's great that they exist. I think it's so important that they exist. But there's a real tension there that's inherent in creating a space that uh, has the mission of being inclusive, but that by definition has to be exclusive. It has to be exclusive because you can't open the doors and let truly everyone in. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a club anymore. It wouldn't be a co-working space. And as is, the wing in New York is always talking about how sort of they're opening locations like crazy in order to ease congestion because they're so crowded and there's a wait list and things like that. So I wanted to write the book in a way that didn't criticize the spaces themselves, but that raised the question of why are they such a sort of flashpoint for conversations about feminism and sexism and exclusivity. And I wanted to criticize more of the society that makes it necessary that women need to have our own spaces because we haven't been offered a place at the table for so long. That makes them necessary in that sense. And that then criticizes these groups and these clubs and these companies um, and holds them to such a high standard in ways that I don't see for other companies. You know, there's really bougie, exclusive and expensive dual gender co-working spaces in New York City, and they're not getting criticized, from what I can tell, in the same way, which sort of then circles back in a Mobius strip to this is why they need to exist. And so I try to sort of write it in a knife's edge to where it's interesting. Some people who've read The Herd who do think the wing is ridiculous or they have some problem with it, but they'll come to me and they'll be like, oh my God, I loved it. Like I also can't stand the wing and think it's so ridiculous and they'll come at it from that perspective. And Eleanor is such a monster. And I don't feel that way at all. I wanted to write it as sort of this nice edge where you could interpret it either way. I saw somebody tweet today something like, you know, I think it would be fair if men weren't allowed to vote for the next hundred years or so. And I just thought that put it in such a good way because the knee-jerk reaction is like, no, that would be completely ridiculous. But then you remember that we didn't get the right to vote until quite recently. And so the fact that men are freaking out about the fact that they're not allowed into these spaces when like everything was a men's space for so long. I mean, that's why I find the fact that there was the anti-herd group in your book It's both Mm -hmm. tragic and comical at the same time where people are literally going and bashing the very women that have created this space. And that's why I think 
the herd being defined as a character in my eyes is so interesting because if you look at the four characters, so you have Eleanor who helped create it, and then you have Katie who has come along kind of as a one of the last members, but she's on board in terms of what it can do for her professionally as well as personally. Hannah or Hannah <laughs> has come on help trying to support her friends and, and Mickey in, in the same way. So I think it's really interesting to me about how these spaces have earned a place in society. But then at the same time, if you think about that there's in the world more women than men, there's not always going to necessarily be a place for us because of the very essence of what these spaces are trying to combat. It's just really interesting to me. Right. Well, and it's so fascinating. And even, I mean, to go back to the wing, which again is one of many examples of these co-working spaces, but the wing now does allow male guests at events. And they had Cory Booker, they had their first male speaker actually come in and their membership rules, they don't even mention gender anymore because they were getting sued for gender discrimination. And I can't belong to a college sorority right now because I'm not a co-ed. I can't belong to AARP because I'm not a retired person. I can't belong to ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, because I'm not an obstetrician nor a gynecologist. Like, there's always been exclusive clubs that only certain people are allowed in because that's the nature of them. And so there's just something about a group being not just women, but high-achieving, ambitious, successful, generally well-off women that really rubs some people the wrong way. And I think that's worth examining, whether it's women who have a knee-jerk distaste for it, which I think has a lot to do with sort of internalized and systemic misogyny, or whether it's men who are just used to having all of their cake and eating it too and having all of the clubs, that to them it's just very threatening to have this space exist that they're not allowed to be a part of, that's not theirs, because they're used to everything being theirs, and they get to pick and choose what they want to set foot in. Well, and they're also not controlling the narrative of what happens to this group. Right. You know, heaven forbid females and women, you know, get to have their own narrative. Um, but I would check back about the gynecology thing, because now that you've used the C word, you could probably be a member now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, I'm on the record, so. <laughs> Just show them the book. Be like, if this doesn't get me in, I don't know what does. Um, right, right. <laughs> so going back to the premise within the book. So one of the characters in the book, we find out, has an open relationship with her partner, with her significant other. And again, going back to society, going back to expectations, going back to the norm, quote unquote, what's considered the norm, the idea that we still have societal norms is just so retrograded and I just, oh, it, it drives me insane. But it's, it's something that a number of couples have introduced or have done mm -hmm. before or have always done and we perhaps maybe weren't talking about it and it just made me think about how women are evolving and there's a lot of instances in this book where stories are not in the character's control and in large part as we as humans evolve I don't think it is particularly unreasonable to think that as we evolve as people and as women our needs and wants evolve and the things that we once wanted perhaps is different and I was just wondering do you have a different opinion than you did when you wrote this book but do you ever think that society will catch up with how the modern woman thinks and, and lives and wants to take up space in the world today. 
To take a step back, this open relationship, this sort of um, polyamory in the book, and something that was important to me was that it was in a heterosexual couple, and it was the woman's idea. And I know a handful of people in open relationships, and I think in all, most of the cases, it was either completely mutual or it was the woman's idea. And we have research now, we ha- we're beginning to see something that's been true probably forever, which is that women are just as sexual as creatures as men are, and women are just as interested in casual sex as men and and when you you know are able to do surveys and conduct research that isn't sort of biased and there's just been hundreds and hundreds of years of sort of societal conditioning telling us that men are these sexual creatures who can barely control their impulses and women don't like sex and are only interested in finding a partner and are only interested in uh, sort of taking this traditional route of locking a man down. And it's just not true. And it's so sexist and it's so dangerous, but it benefited men and it benefited patriarchy because as you said it sort of kept people locked into these roles it kept women within this box where they were sort of owned by a man they were literally walked down the aisle by one man their father and handed off to the next and it meant it afforded them less agency over their bodies over their sexuality over their emotional interiority and that can be a very threatening thing it's certainly threatening to the status quo into the way that we've lived and looked at sexuality for the last few hundred years or probably thousands of years. So will society ever catch up? I don't know, but it feels like we're moving in the right direction. And I think polyamory and just different sexual expressions are going to become more and more the norm and different gender expressions, I think, will become more the norm. And I think, you know, the way that I'm about the same age as you as well, and I think the way that our parents sort of had to deal with our parents' generation had to deal with a wave of their children coming out. And that was difficult for them, confusing for them. The generation before theirs or had to sort of get used to the idea of interracial dating. That was new. And I think that it's going to be a similar thing for our generation of we're going to have to overcome this sort of knee jerk feeling. It's wrong to be in a throuple. It's wrong to be in group child rearing and group sex is wrong and bad. And we're going to have our kids telling us things and, and living things in a way that was more comfortable for them than it was for us. And we'll have to get used to that and evolve and just continue to keep in mind that as long as people are safe and as long as sex is consensual, like truly it's between whoever wants to be engaged in that act. And it's really none of our business. So we're a long ways from from having society really caught up, I would say. And, and there's been this huge backlash the last few years of us, for example, having the pussy grabber uh, as our president and having, you know, Time's Up and Me Too quickly quieted as witch hunts and as, you know, men are being taken down by Me Too instead of, no, they were taken down by their own sexual predator status actions. So it can feel like we're doing a bit of a back step right now, but I do think on the whole we're moving in the right direction, I hope. Yeah. And I hope that books like mine kind of can help normalize things too of like, look, it's not that weird that there's a couple within it that's seeing other people. Yeah, and that is literally what I was just about to say, that I am thankful that these themes and these relationships are used within your book because... I think one thing that you said there was the word comfortable. So I think obviously it's so subjective, the word Mm -hmm. 
comfortable, the word accepted, the word normal. So I absolutely appall the word normal because what does that actually mean? Um, right. I am very proud to fly my freak flag all the time for lots of things <laughs> that I you know, stand for and believe in. And for our generation, as you said, it is it is unquestionable and it is an absolute mind-boggling experience for anyone to question, you know, the things that we embrace and we believe and we hold true right. to ourselves and value. And I definitely find the challenges within our parents' generation and having those conversations and wanting to have conversations with other women about mm -hmm. what is comfortable for us, wanting to be able to have those conversations. I think what Sex in the City as a show did well was show that women can feel safe and comfortable talking to other women about sex, about what feels good, about what they enjoy, about what they want. I think it's really, really interesting. And we could probably have an entire podcast episode about that. But what I think is really great, I mean, we see a queer relationship in your book. We see lots of instances where women are questioning themselves in terms of, am I actually not only doing right by myself, but am I doing right by others? And mm -hmm. as independent and confident and as beautifully flawed as your characters are, there are those very uncomfortable moments of vulnerability. And that's when I think we find out the most wonderful secrets and the most wonderful things about these characters, their flaws. Um, and, and sometimes I love the flaws more than I actually love the great things about characters. And I think when I say the uncomfortable moments of vulnerability, more so because I was thinking about myself and how I lack self-confidence and how I, in my career, try to appear strong and knowledgeable and confident, but yet I have moments where I feel like, oh my gosh, like Katie did when she's thinking about her book, thinking about, wow, should I really just start over because what I would have to do to, to get over this hurdle is just too unimaginably awful mm -hmm. that I just can't think of, of even doing it. It's so much better to just hide over here in a dark corner. <laughs> and literally there are skeletons in the closets of these characters. <laughs> and it really, to me, feels like women today, particularly when they're in the spotlight regularly, perhaps like Eleanor or Hannah, where she's having to be the voice of the herd in moments of crisis, we constantly are forced, not just by our own internal monologue that we have with ourselves, but by men, by exterior people to apologize and justify and really think about how the past has hurt other people. And I was just kind of wondering, our past has a really sneaky way of staying with us. It's like this shadow that really hovers over us, regardless of what's happened in your past, it's always there to haunt us. And when we acknowledge those mistakes that we make in our life, whether we acknowledge them as soon as they happen or whether we acknowledge them 10, 15, 20 years down the road, do you think it's ever possible to really forget the past or do you think it's always just going to be there with us? It's an interesting, really difficult question. I, I don't know that there's a yes or no answer. I think you can move on from something and accept something without necessarily you know, forgetting it or, or sort of eliminating it from your story, which is a theme from The Lost Night as well. Obviously, there's a literal lost night that snipped from the timeline. And I think, so we all have things in our past that bring us shame, right? We all do, especially women. The research shows pretty consistently, you know, Brene Brown and others have done research on shame and women are much more subject to it and sort of hold it in, in higher levels. 
but then also making it even worse, feel like we need to act like everything's perfect and never sort of show that vulnerable side of us. And so for me, part of writing these books, which is really scary, but then often really rewarding when I talk to people like you, is exposing these vulnerabilities and these deep, shameful thoughts and secrets and past experiences from these characters that they bring out into the light and that allows them to finally deal with them and move on and sort of gain closure and forgive themselves, which I think is one of the most important parts. And so, you know, the literal circumstances are different. I don't share any of the, really the past experiences with the characters in, in The Lost Night or uh, in The Herd, but, you know, there are certainly things from my own experiences as a, as a woman that bring me shame. There's experiences from my early 20s. You know, in The Lost Night, the narrator, Lindsay, has a lot of shame about how much drinking she used to do and what she used to do when drunk and how she used to get blackout. And, you know, when I was 23, have nights I don't remember either. And it's more socially acceptable to just kind of laugh about it and, and not really discuss it. But there's a lot of shame. And so those are the things that I like bringing out and sort of like laying myself back there through these characters um, and just being really honest about all of the sort of gross feelings we have toward ourselves, toward our younger selves, toward things we've done before, towards ways that we've treated other people. And I think it's only in that way when you sort of face these uncomfortable feelings and memories that you're able to forgive yourself and move on. And it's interesting because I alluded to this at the beginning, it's really rewarding when someone picks up on that. And, you know, I get a note from a, a random reader who says like this made me I got this incredible email out of the blue one day where this woman said um I've been you know depressed with all these years about some things that happened in my early 20s and this like Lindsay in the last night made me realize that I can actually forgive myself and move on and I cried when I read it it was amazing then at the same time some people are so uncomfortable with I think their own shame that uh their response to reading my books is these women are awful why would anyone want to read about them? Oh, they're disgusting. They're annoying. They're puerile. They're immature. They're whatever. And that's fine. I can't control how people are going to take it. And if it's not the book for you, like certainly not every book is for me either. But it is really sort of telling to me that like, well, if someone hates the book, it's not because they, it's generally, it's not because the plot wasn't working. It's not because of this or that. It's because they're disgusted by the narrators, the, the main characters having and talking about these deep, shameful things. And I think that's telling and interesting. And my favorite books to read are ones where the narrators do the same and the characters aren't perfect, uh, but they're, you know, real and believable and trying to learn and change and evolve. And honestly, I hope people read the book and are just entertained for eight hours. But if anyone wants to read it, and, you know, have a little bit and have it inspire a little bit of self-reflection or a little compassion toward themselves or toward other people. That would be great. Yeah, it's um, it's a really tricky thing, forgiveness, because I think you can forgive others and not necessarily forgive yourself and vice versa. And mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, loads of phrases out there. I'm sure there's some that my grandmother used to pass around, but regret is the, the past crippling you in the present. Um, That's a good and, one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is. And it's so true. Um, and what I will say is I loved so many elements of your book, but one of the elements that I really loved is that none of the fates of your characters and 
we do see a lot of forgiveness towards the end, obviously without giving anything away, but a lot of the fates of your characters were were not predictable in any way. Um, I definitely didn't see a lot of them coming, uh, not just one, but a lot of them. And, you know, just when you think your fate is sealed, you give us those twists that you're known for and that I love and that you're so brilliant at. And I feel like it very much applies to life in general, not just for women, but for anyone really. But you go through life and you, you come to these crossroads and you, you go on these paths and you hope you don't have regrets. You take one and you, it kind of reminds me of like those choose your own adventure books um, that I used to love, mm-hmm. but where I totally cheated and would read on to the next page to see if I was going to die. But um, <laughs> I was just wondering, you said a lot of stuff surprised you when you wrote it, but when it came to the ending, did any of your characters have an ending that you weren't particularly planning on? Or were you really sure you knew what their ending was going to be? The answer is that not one of the characters had an ending that, I had planned on. (laughs) I had no idea how it was going to end. And especially as I started to get closer and closer to that and nearing the climax and the sort of the finale in my writing process, I was like, oh crap, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to, I don't know how I'm going to land all these planes that I flung up in the air over the first 80,000 words. And so I I didn't know what the ending was going to be for any of them or how it was going to go down. But I did have kind of an understanding of, for each of the main characters, like what their goal was and what their need was. So they each had sort of a goal, which was their on the surface thing that they were going after. But then below it, there was a deeper need that they didn't even recognize that that was what they really needed. But for them to grow and evolve as a human, there was something that they needed to, some insight they needed to realize and put into action and, you know, a a way to grow, which is how every book works, right? Like books, you follow a character, a hero's journey, and by the end, hopefully they're a different person be pretty boring to just watch someone have nothing change about themselves. And so that was sort of my like guiding light and my little flicker, flicker of a candle at the end of the tunnel was knowing what the characters needed to to realize about themselves and about each other and about about ambition and about these kind of perfect veneers that we keep talking about. And so it took a few different tries and I, I tried out a few different um, sort of branching choose your own adventure path. And the ending ended up getting rewritten and chopped up and moved around a few times um, before it felt like it was working. But yeah, I sort of knew where they needed to end up, but I wasn't sure how. And I didn't, the only way that I could find out how was by writing it. So I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and I would love to know what other authors and books you would want to sit alongside your shelf. I feel closest to the other sort of female authors writing what I consider feminist thrillers about young women who are contemporary. I mean, I wish I could be up there with Agatha Christie, but that's not really how I think of myself. So I think the way that I would see this book Frozen in Time would be on a shelf with authors like Wendy Walker, with Angie Kim, with Daniela Petrova, with Megan Collins, with these other women who are writing really interesting sort of domestic suspense that is beyond domestic suspense because it's not just about a, a sort of primary romantic relationship, but is looking more more broadly at sort of women's place in society. Jessica Knoll is obviously one of the current masters of this. But yeah, I think there's really interesting things happening in thrillers that are written by women, mostly for women, that have to do with complex female friendships and sort of our our complex social webs. And I hope that that is where it would end up. 
And your book is definitely worthy of being next to all of those authors. So I thank just you. Want to say <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with me. I've absolutely loved talking to you about anything and everything to do with the wonderful world of women and the wonderful world of workspaces and everything that goes in between. Yeah. So Andrea's book comes out on the 24th of March. Really exciting. Just really quickly, the best way for people to get in touch with you. Yeah, so I'm all over social media uh, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Andy Bartz, A N D I B A R T Z. On Facebook, my author page is Andrea Bartz Author. And then my website is andreabartz.com, and that's got info about all my books. It's got a contact me form if you have something to say. You can sign up for my newsletter. And yeah, I would love to hear from everyone. Perfect. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.